The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome to Psych Up Live. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. And on this show, we're going to turn up the psychological perspective on many life issues. As the former host of Psych Up on Crisozo Radio, I joined with terrific guests to host 73 shows. This show is different because it includes you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in, call in with a comment at 1-866-472-5788. You know, a diagnosis of cancer is terrifying for all. But survival statistics reveal that although we can't control everything in life, a cancer diagnosis is no longer the inevitable end to a life story. Early diagnosis, ever-improving treatment options, and ongoing funded research make survivorship increasingly possible. Today, we're going to underscore that reality. You're going to hear from three cancer survivors and their journeys that went from pain to possibility. Dr. Joel Evans is a distinguished professor and known author in marketing at the Zarb School of Business at Hofstra University. When diagnosed with cancer, his goal was to dance at his daughter's wedding. He did that and more. Patricia Malone is a two-time breast cancer survivor. She is the executive director of the Center for Corporate Education and Training and the Advanced Energy Institute at Stony Brook University. She is a nationally recognized university workforce leader. Dave Berger is a three-time cancer survivor, consisting of two episodes with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2009 and 2012 and prostate cancer in 2010. He had a so far successful bone marrow stem cell transplant in November 2012 and has been in remission since. Mr. Berger is an engineering and safety consultant and expert witness for state and federal governmental agencies for petroleum and natural gas pipelines and distribution systems. Joel Evans, Patricia Malone, and Dave Berger, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm delighted to have all of you. Um, Let's start with you, Joe. You're the most recent cancer survivor. Um, You're about a year post-surgery and I guess about six months post-chemo. Joe, what was the impact of being diagnosed with cancer? Well, first, I 
first of all, I have to say that I think I'm the luckiest person alive, even having had cancer, because I have, uh, I never thought I'd say this, but I've been diabetic for 20 years, and I would have blood tests on every three months, and my endocrinologist, uh, Joseph Tarana, who's great, uh, uh, had a test that he didn't like the result of, and he scheduled me for a uh, CAT scan MRI the same day, so that um, I was caught so early that my odds are pretty good because it's pancreatic cancer for a type of cancer that is that is really uh, threatening. So um, I was always okay. I mean, I'm, I, I fight and I, I try to be upbeat, and I always had that attitude. It was much harder for my family. My daughter, whose wedding was several months uh, after the diagnosis, wanted to immediately cancel the wedding, and I said, no way, I'm going to be there. I'm going to dance, and I'm going to give a toast. And I was, kind of, I was, it was almost like an out-of-body experience in terms of trying to relate to it. Uh, the one mistake I made was looking at the Internet too much and <laughs> seeing all the material on um, uh, this particular type of cancer and this so-called Whipple procedure, which I had. And um, I recommend everybody talk to your doctor, don't talk to the Internet. Right. So um, my new motto did become live life every day, though, because I think mm. that you know, I'm a big warrior, and I and uh, and also just to let go of stupid stuff. You know, the things that we'd normally just argue over every day, and just you know, focus on getting better. Focus on the surgery. What was after the surgery? What was after that? And just keep setting milestones. So I, um, I don't think I was ever really down. Well, uh, let me I ask you diagnosis. this. If I were to say, for our listeners to know, what was the most difficult part of the journey, and what did you pull up on to get through? By far the most difficult part for me was they put me on, when I was uh, ready for chemo, they put me on one of these pretty rigorous uh, three-drug uh, chemo things, and I had... Um, awful side effects. I'm not going to go into what happened, but I, it was just every part of my body was a, was a mess. And I, so I had the physical part of it, but what bothered me more, because I knew I was going to get through that, was the psychological part, because as a college professor, I was planning to go back the last two months of the semester. The people who were covering for me had already finished up their stuff, almost set to go. And my oncologist, who's also a great guy, Jeffrey Viserka, said, I recommend that you sit out the semester. And mm-hmm. I was kind of devastated by that. But what I had done all along is that I had given the people who were teaching my classes my notes, <laughs> and I continued to write the exams and to grade all the papers, even though I had been in the chemo. Unfortunately, once they dropped me from one of the, the, uh, uh, the drugs, um, I felt much better. Mm. Now, in many cases, and I, and I think uh, this might be true of Pat and Dave also, people say that other cancer survivors are key to helping you make it along this journey. Did you find that to be true, Joe? Well, I found that to be true in two ways. One is I have a couple of really good friends who had gone through um, some pretty tough cancer stuff. And even before I had surgery, I, I reached out to them because we're close, and I wanted to find out. Um, their reaction, and um, I just lost my train of thought. Could you say the well, question? Well, yeah. Um, in terms of what role do other cancer survivors? Oh, okay, I'm play? sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, so I had my friends that I leaned on a lot and leaned on a lot during the whole journey. 
But I also, and my wife was surprised by this, is that the, the facility that I went uh, to for the chemo had a bunch of small rooms which had like one or two uh, seats in them. And they had another one, which is a large one, which held eight people. And she was amazed that I picked the room that had eight people. And the reason that I did that is because we all ended up supporting each other. Every mm-hmm. single person in there uh, was upbeat. You know, and we'd all talk about our children and, you know, uh, everybody had a different form of cancer, had a different treatment. But I think that we all felt good by being able to, you know, share uh, some of our common experiences, the basic one being cancer. Mm, it's interesting because it's a good example where they say that people heal in community, especially when they've walked in the same shoes down the same path. And it sounds like that was what was happening in that large room. Uh, yes, uh, I, think it, I think everybody means well, who are your friends and your family, um, but this is different. And um, uh, there aren't a lot of people, and, you know, for the cancer that I have, there aren't a lot of people that survive it because they don't get diagnosed early enough, and they, almost, and they end up in chemo or radiation to try to relieve their pain during the last period. So that's why I consider myself blessed and never, and it's hard for anybody to believe this, but I never once said, why me? Mm-hmm. What do you I think? Thought I was lu- I've always thought I was lucky more than uh-huh. I thought, oh my God. Mm. So gratitude is a very big resiliency trait, and certainly that's, that's one of the things you're saying. I want to ask you, because very often when people are diagnosed, they feel, it's funny, we blame ourselves for not being perfect. Did you ever fear or feel stigmatized by the diagnosis, um, Joel? Was it something you ever felt you had to hide? I mean, you have a fairly... Okay, I, I, have, I have two parts for that. A lot of people yeah. knew the thing that surprised me, which I guess it shouldn't have, is that, is that there were some people I would have expected um, to interact with me that I think they must have thought I was contagious or something. So mm. they, they really stayed away, and that kind of surprised me. So I had mm. a bunch of friends who were great, but I had some that clearly... So when I went back to school in, in September, there were a lot of people who just said hello, and they just kept walking. Because I, mm. I, you know, I don't know what they felt. The other part, though, in terms of uh, you know hiding or whatever, is I am uh, flabbergasted that I'm doing this radio show because this is a very personal thing and it's the type of thing that I wouldn't go out and, and share. But I believe that all three of us think that if we can share our story and help one other person, that that it's worth it, and that's why I'm you know I'm on today. That's terrific. It's beautifully said. We're going to come back to you a little later. I'm just going to move on to Patty for, for a while and um, then on to Dave. Now, Pat, um, do I have it right? Your son, who's now 23, was a baby when you were first diagnosed with breast cancer? Yes, he was one year old. Mm. What was that like, being a young mother and being diagnosed with breast cancer? Well, I have to tell you, Suzanne, listening to so many of the things that Joel just shared um, really resonate with me. I had several of the same experiences he. But to answer your initial question, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, Time stood still. When I received the diagnosis, I could not believe that I was dealing with this because my mortality was tied to the care and the nurturing of my son. And I will say nothing short of trauma and terror were the first feelings. Mm. And the second feeling was my son cannot be left without a mother, and so I have to somehow 
come together when I come out of shock and make sure that that doesn't happen. But that was the tremendous underlying fear. And the other part was realizing that it probably would remove my chance to have other children. And so that Mm -hmm. was a tremendous loss all in the same moment. And I can still remember the moment in the doctor's office when he gave me the news. Mm. All of these feelings ran through my mind at the same time. Mm. It's a hard thing to get your head and heart around. Patty, what do you, what, at that time, what did you, I know it's been an ongoing journey, what do, you, what do you think you drew upon at that time to get through that and take care of that little baby? I think at that time, once I started to come out of the initial trauma and shock, I started to mobilize towards identifying the most wonderful, knowledgeable, experienced team of medical practitioners that could guide me through this. Mm. And my husband is a tremendous researcher, and this is way before the Internet, so, Joel, we couldn't Google information, which was actually a blessing, um, although it does come to you in different ways sometimes when you don't need it. But we researched heavily the different medical opportunities we could have in the region, and um, we came up with a doctor that after I had gone to two or three doctors, I knew was exactly the right person for me. I felt tremendously that this doctor was my advocate against cancer, and he would stop at nothing to make sure that I was as okay as could be. He didn't mince words. He didn't sweet talk any of the issues, but he was real and pragmatic, and our personalities matched. And once I found him... I was able to move into the next phase of scheduling the surgery and dealing with all of the other things that I was, you know, just so very terrified to go through. But alongside with that was the support of my family. And the support of my family, although they were as traumatized as I was at the time, and especially everybody was brokenhearted that possibly a little one-year-old might lose his mother. um, But when they were able to... um, put their grief aside and look at what they could do. It was very amazing how the pragmatic pieces of making sure someone was there to take care of my son and that food was brought in and that the grocery shopping was done and all the things I truly had no strength for in the very early days mm-hmm. of trying mm-hmm. to identify the next step. Mm. It's interesting how, like, as Joe was speaking, you find achievable goals and you keep putting one foot in front of the other. You both also are referencing excellent medical care that you could really trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, as not, not, to, not to mention the fact that he wanted to dance with his daughter and you needed to raise that baby. That's true. I needed to see yeah. my son grow up. Absolutely. And there's something about the, the love that Joel had for his daughter and the need to be at that very important moment and the love that I had for my child that I do believe, I do believe it puts something into your spirit and your soul and it propels your immune system to a really good place. That love and that hope and that joy is a very important element side by side with all of the very important medical interventions. Mm. So you're sort of saying hope and love actually affects your, to you, you know, you really feel like it reduces stress and helps your immune system. Oh, I absolutely do. And I actually have an interesting little tale about that. Um, when I completed my original mastectomy, and again, for a woman, the disfigurement in the, in the breast cancer and treatment is really a whole other element to deal with in terms of your whole psyche and sense of self. So that was really very difficult. But one of the things that I was told by other survivors and who were fabulous giving different pieces of wisdom about medical recovery and healing and reading, and everyone brought a different piece to the table, was... Um, um, that 
it was very important to make sure that you thought each day about something that gave you joy, something mm-hmm. that would bring you to a place. And if you read any of the literature, it does talk about that as well. So I would think about my son, and I would think about the first time I heard his heartbeat. And that would bring such a sense of gratitude and, and joy to me that I would think about it. When I would get frightened and I would get scared, I would bring that thought into my mind. And when I went to the oncologist for the evaluation of whether or not I would need chemotherapy, I was so nervous. And he came out and he said to me, your white count is up. You must be getting a cold. And I said, no, I'm fine. And he said, no, well, there's something medically going on. Your white count is up. You must be getting Mm. a cold. But I believe it was all of those immune boosters from thinking about the joy that was really impacting my system. And so it's very interesting. It was reflected in that. It's very, very powerful. Now, um, Patty, I'm going to ask you the question I asked Joel. Did you have a fear telling other people? I mean, you're a university person, you're very visible, uh, county, nationally. Did you fear being stigmatized or were you surprised in terms of people's reactions? Like Joe was a bit surprised with some people's reactions. How, how did it work for you? Well, for me, I think that getting to a place where I felt comfortable with my body and the result of the surgery and coming back in publicly dressed and was was difficult for me. No one ever no one ever treated me or stigmatized me in their behavior in any way, but my sense of self was really rough. I remember being tremendously nervous about coming back to work. Because what happens is, as Joel mentioned with the people that were around him in the treatment, you leave the life you're in you get transformed into a patient and a whole network of people experiencing different levels of what you're going through and a medical community. So you enter another culture. Right. And then you become identified with that culture. And that culture becomes a tremendous support system if you find yourself in the right place. And we hope people do. Mm. Then you have to re-enter your life again. And your public life at work is a very different place than your personal life because your family is with you side by side in parallel with this. So coming back to work for me the first few days was very difficult, mostly because of my self-consciousness and my sense of myself, less so because of others. It was interesting Mm. to me how most people's life went on and some people, as Joel said, would just wave and say hello. But it was also interesting that some people you could truly sense were very uncomfortable for whatever reason and could not say anything or would act more distant than you anticipated. Right, right. And, um, and, and that was a big lesson to learn. Okay. You know, we're going to take a brief break at this point. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking about surviving cancer with three survivors, Dr. Joel Evans, Patricia Malone, and Dave Berger. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? 
It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're talking about surviving cancer with three people who have taken that journey. Um, We're talking at the moment to Dave Berger. Dave, you've been diagnosed with cancer three times. You've even written about cancer survivorship. From that kind of experience, I mean, we're all wondering... How do you cope with something like that? Three rounds, Dave. What do you find are the factors that helped you get through this? Well, Suzanne, I want to say that uh, what uh, Joel and Pat said, I concur 100% with. Mm -hmm. And I I just want to say about when I was initially diagnosed with cancer, I was not upset. I was not concerned. And in fact, to some degree, I was relieved because statistically, so many people get diagnosed with cancer, and I figured in my immediate family, there was nobody better than myself rather than my wife and my kids. Mm. And my, uh, At that time, I didn't have any grandkids, but now I do. So I was not upset, and I just took it for what it was worth. And because I was so sick, it actually, I, I kind of expected it. Mm. Um, the second time I was diagnosed, I kind of expected that, too. Uh, the prostate cancer, I had my PSA counts had been going up and down, and it was interesting on how that came about because I had a false positive on a test for a recurrence of lymphoma, and when they continued to do the diagnostics, they determined that I might have the start of prostate cancer, which mm-hmm. turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. So that was in the very early stages whereas the first time I had lymphoma was in a very late stage. Uh, staging for lymphoma is different than the other cancers. Is It depends on how widespread it is because it's a liquid cancer. And in my case, I was a 4+, plus, which means essentially it was from my knees to my skull where I mm. had tumors. Um, the only surprise time I had was the third diagnos- diagnosis because my doctor's, 
told me that if I went three years, I would go from remission to cured. And I actually went two years, 50 weeks until that... <laughs> Did the final test wow. determined that I was cured, which determined that it came back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to answer your question, I was not surprised in any of those cases, mm. and and only in the third time, and, and that was a little bit disconcerting. Some people talk about every test you have is you're waiting for the the shoe to fall, yeah, that mm-hmm. next shoe, and if if. Initially, maybe you look at it that way, but as time goes on, that becomes less and less and less. And what what you're doing is you're getting back to your life. And to to put it in another step, and as Pat so well said, that I looked at taking things in small increments to get my life back. Mm-hmm. Again, I went through uh, my cancer was treated somewhat different in that I spent a lot of time in the hospital getting chemo and a lot of chemo because mm. it's such a widespread cancer type. So every time I went through a cycle of chemo, I'd come home and I'd be okay, but I'd be very drained and very tired. And I used to set a goal of walking outside for 100 feet, and mm-hmm. then it was 200 feet, and then it was 300 feet until I got up to over a mile every time. Mm-hmm. So then, achievable goals. Yeah. You know, you and, had and that, goals. And that to me was a key that I had to look at goals, but they had to be achievable. They couldn't be too excessive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you, did you feel that friends or family play or connection with others who were, had been survivors or were suffering played a part for you, Dave? Yes. I, I think the whole survivor community... Uh, mm-hmm is something, and it doesn't matter what cancer you have or what kind of treatments you've had, because they know what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you're looking for sympathy, because sometimes when you talk to people, they give you sympathy, and that isn't what you're looking for. You're looking more for what I call empathy, somebody who understands what you're going through and understands some of the feelings that you have. You know, mm-hmm. and they, they can run the gamut from, I'm lucky it was caught, to uh, why am I being saved and others aren't, to all the way, because we are survivors, and all the way to sometimes was how many more times can I take going through this? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Dave, how did you access the survivor community? What, now, Joel said he was sitting with folks. Patty described the whole culture that she became involved with. Did, are you talking about the people you met in the hospital or outside people that had, like one of Joel's um, colleagues, had had cancer and that was so helpful to him? How did you, who did you access with this? Uh, I accessed a, a cancer survivors group that was run by the hospital, mm. a support group, which was for what we consider, what I considered my type of cancer, which is blood cancer. Mm-hmm. And also by volunteering in the hospital, I, I meet a lot of people that I'm going through stuff, and we kind of support each other. Maybe and you could tell us. That's why I volunteer, and I volunteer in the blood cancer area. Now, now, could you explain to our listeners just exactly what you do as a volunteer, Dave? I, I think it's so important. Yeah, I, I, I try to go, and I typically go once a week, one morning a week, because I'm still working full-time, 
but I give up that morning to go, and it's not really giving up because I'm gaining from it too Mm -hmm. because I feel good about it. And what I do is I introduce myself to a patient, and they may have, and again, these are typically always blood cancer patients, lymphoma, uh, leukemia, multiple myeloma, which are all part of the blood system, part Mm -hmm. of your either immune or your red, red blood cells. And I introduce myself, and I say, I'm the after. I'm three years since I had a, a bone marrow transplant, and you're sitting here going through chemo, wait, either waiting for it. And in fact, many times I'm there, sometimes I'm there the day that they're going to be getting their transplant. And I said, mm-hmm. this is I'm what you can expect in some cases, and it's showing you that all that you're going through is well worth it. So you're a, you're a person who's bringing hope. Yes, I'm trying to do that because, mm-hmm. as Pat said uh, very aptly, that the key to surviving isn't just good medicine, which I think all three of us have had, but it's being inspired to continue, to force ahead, to have a goal, whether it's to see your children grow, your grandchildren go, to dance at your daughter's wedding, but to get your life back and continue doing things. And Mm -hmm. you have that goal, you have to say to yourself every day, what do I need to do to get better? What do I need to do to get over this? What do I need to do so I can do what I want to do and not necessarily be stuck in a hospital or constantly under fear? So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what, what I try to do with folks. And I try to get them to the point where saying that you're part of the equation for getting better. It isn't just the doctors, it's you. You've got to have a positive attitude. Hmm. It's beautiful what you're saying. I'm going to go back to Joel and Pat, and, and, and I want you to answer this too, but we'll start with Joel. Now, all of you are people who work, and you went back to work. What role did work have? Was that a protective factor? Was it a source of resilience for you? What would you say, Joe? Joe? Patty, let me ask you, what, what role did work play for you? Um, well, I was, I was diagnosed twice. So the first time, work play gave me an opportunity to come back and have another dimension of myself back alive and well again because mm-hmm. you can't under underestimate the feeling of being a patient and there is some sort of a safety at some place in the middle of being a patient but then you need to come out of it mm-hmm. so while I needed to go back to being a mother it also helped to be back in this, the flow of work in my career as well and people were really very very supportive and allowed me the space to readjust my schedule so that was very critical the second time I was diagnosed was a different set of issues. It was 16 years later, and I was having a very, very difficult time dealing with having to go into that medical culture and community again. And so work was a tremendous support for me because my son, while he still needed me, he was still in high school, was not the same focus. um, And work allowed me to have a continuity. And at that point, having been through it once before, I suppose it was easier for me to talk to people about it and to share it, and work was a tremendous, tremendous um, 
a compassionate environment for me. The, the women that I worked with and even the men, I cannot tell you, they rallied around, sent flowers, and kept me informed of what was going on and knew how important it was. So it allowed me to bridge the two worlds um, simultaneously yeah. through the second recovery. In, in a way, you were able to hold on to that identity, that other dimension of your identity. Mm-hmm. Yes. In terms of their intervention. How about you, Dave? Do you think work played a part in your journey and in your, uh, in your hope and in the steps you took? Uh, most definitely. Uh, I was fortunate because most of my work I can do on a computer so that I actually continued working all the way through my, all three journeys in that I was able to bring the computer to the hospital and I typically was hospitalized a week at a time going on for six months or so. Every couple of weeks I had to go back in for more treatments. But I would bring the computer and that way I could focus in on something else instead of just sitting there and thinking about how sick and I was or basically why me, etc. I had something to focus on besides my goal of getting better and getting mm-hmm. out and getting my life back together. And it really helped make the days go a lot quicker Mm. because uh, the hospital routine is kind of just a routine and you kind of get caught up in it. But if you have something else to focus in on instead of just sitting there and dwelling on it, it was uh, was very good. And, in fact, one of my colleagues uh, had told me that uh, one of the reports I wrote when I was undergoing chemo was probably the best one I ever wrote. (laughs) Well, you know, it speaks to, we talk about in terms of facing trauma, constructive distraction. And I think the ability to get into a report, uh, Patty going to work, Joel writing articles, it actually does exactly what you need to do to keep on walking, to look away from the trauma. And when it's your body, that's not so easy to do. So, I mean, I I can picture that you in the hospital with your laptop, it was actually a very important resilience um, that you could focus on is your work. Exactly. And, and an, another anecdote to that whole thing is one of the drugs they gave me, they told me, was, uh, could give me early onset dementia. Mm. For people under 60, it's reversible. For people over 60, it's not reversible. Wow. I was over 60 when I got that drug, so every morning I'd turn on the laptop, and if I remembered my password, I said, well, didn't get me today. (laughs) Uh, That's really something. Joel, are you back on? I don't know. We may have lost Joel. Mm -hmm. Let let me ask both of you, since you've both had more than one uh, round of cancer, how do you deal with the fear of recurrence? Patty, how how do you do that? Um, I think that the because the type of cancer I had was breast cancer, and because it was confined um, in both times, extensive but confined, um, I'm less afraid now of recurrence than I was for the 16 years that I would go back and forth for my tests and wait to see if I had breast cancer in the other breast, which mm-hmm. eventually happened. So the terror during those years was really rough. Um, it would come to a peak and I think anybody that's a cancer survivor would say this. You can live in between the appointments, and then once the appointment is on the calendar, you start to feel yourself getting very anxious and very worried, and all the memories start to come back because you're, you're revisiting the trauma each time you go in for blood work or an evaluation. 
So that was really rough. But as the years went on, it started to become a little bit easier. Um, and at this point in time, I think I, w- I function in a more proactive way. I don't, I don't rule out that anything could happen or that even this cancer could metastasize because it's always a possibility. So I work very hard in terms of keeping myself healthy and in eating well. And, you know, the first oncologist I met told me to eat organic and gave me some protocol that many of the medical doctors really didn't agree with at the time. They felt it was a genetic disease and that nothing nutritionally would make a difference. I disagree. And um, so I think that anything you can do to be proactive in maintaining your health and nurturing your health um, on you know, a mind and body level is a good way to sort of keep that anxiety at bay. Mm-hmm. How about you, Dave? How, how do you actually deal with the fear of recurrence? Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the more time that goes on since your last diagnosis, of actually having the disease and, and conquering it, it becomes less and less. Uh, I'm still, I've had a quirky side effect to my bone marrow. Although it was my own cells, in a small percentage of time, they will attack your own body. And in my case, I developed autoimmune disease. So I'm constantly getting blood tests because of that now. And so I, I kind of just look at it and... Each time I, I assess before I get tested how I feel, and then I try to guess what the results are going to be, both for the autoimmune or possibly for the, the lymphoma coming back. And talking, again, to survivor community, I've met somebody who had three bone marrow transplants. Mm-hmm. And so there is not a finite end to that. They can keep on doing it. After you do an auto and it doesn't work, they have to switch to somebody else. You have to get a donor. So that's one of the things. And another thing that, and I want to inject this so I don't forget it, Mm -hmm. is that over the years, and I think Patty and Joel will also agree, there has been such an improvement in treating cancers and just in in the blood cancers. Between my first diagnosis in 09 and the second one three years later in 12 was like day and night. The drugs, the limiting of the side effects, and how they do these bone marrow transplants. Although I wasn't transplanted the first time because I got better so much, I was prepped for it, and it was a lot harder prep than the second time when I actually got it. Mm-hmm. And now, the prep now three years later again is even less invasive than I had. So mm. there have been okay. so many advances. All right, we're just we're going to take a brief break, but you're 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 all sort of talking about those advances as making such a difference. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We've been talking about cancer survivorship. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. 
Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health, all kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though, so this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. You're, you're listening to Psych Up Live, and we're here with Joel Evans, Pat Malone, and Dave Berger, and they're really sharing their stories of cancer survivorship, the difficult moments, the pain, the possibilities, what they've drawn upon, and we lost you a little bit there because of technical problems. Joel, the question that Patty and Dave um, answered that I wanted to raise with you is how do you deal with fear of recurrence, and what role did work play in your journey? I want to give a two-part answer to this one. So I think one of the most important things that people have to do is we want to go to doctors that are honest with us, but we don't want to go to doctors that devastate us. So after I had the surgery, um, like Dr. Gene Kopp, i got to put a plug for him because he's great, I was recommended to an oncologist, and... When I said, and he, he told me what he wanted to do, and then I said, well, you know, how, what's my prognosis going to be um, if I do all the chemo and all the stuff that, that, you know, radiation afterwards and all the stuff you're suggesting? And what he did, did is pull up on his screen a 1997 study done of everybody who had pancreatic cancer, whether it was caught early, late, or whatever, and said, uh, you know, your prognosis is that you'll, you're going to live by a year to two years and that the chemo will extend your life three, three months. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what? And he says, well, I have to be honest. And I said, no, you have to be hopeful. 
So I got out of there as fast as I could, talked <laughs> to two other people, and the one that I felt most, because I know they're all competent, it was the one I felt most comfortable with, because this first guy scared the crap out of me, and, mm-hmm. he was, and I was lucky because I was, it was found early, and he's lumping me in with everybody from a study that was, you know, 18 years before. Mm. So, yeah. uh, so I, 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 people, if you know, go to a doctor that's honest, but don't go to somebody that's going to devastate you. So, with regard to to work, I think work and physical activity are both important to me. So, people couldn't believe that by the time I left the hospital um, after uh, my surgery, uh, which was a while, that I was actually walking three miles in the hospital. Mm-hmm. because I had been physically fit before that. Mm-hmm. And then when I was on chemo, I could have been the only one in my gym's history. While I was on chemo, I was <laughs> actually in the gym. And I wasn't doing much, but it made me feel psychologically great. So with regard to work, um, I, ha- I, uh, I had the September 1st date to look forward to since I missed the, the rest of the spring. And my goal for the, for the fall semester, this past fall semester, was that I was going to be there every day and miss nothing. And I, been, I get, was there every day, and I missed um, nothing. And mm-hmm. I try to be, um, you know, still as active as I can, either going to the gym or doing a whole series of exercises um, at home. And the other thing that keeps me going, which is semi-work related, is that I'm big with social media, so I have uh, two blogs that are related to each of my two textbooks. And even though I'm the old guy in the group, I'm the social media guru at our Zob school, so I run mm-hmm. our blog. So even though I wasn't able to do much except sit at a computer for an hour, I worked on all three of those blogs uh, conscientiously because that made me feel good. It's very much like, I think, what Pat, you were saying, and Dave, you said about that laptop laptop at the hospital that is the wonderful constructive distractions. I want to ask each of you, I know one of the things you wrote in your paper, Dave, was you need to have belief in someone or something to help you through this. So in any case for any of you, did spirituality play a part in what helped you get through? Did, did, did that help you, Pat? Yes, it, it really did. It truly did. I felt that um, I was connected to something bigger than this experience, and I too, as um, my two colleagues here on the phone have said, um, never said, why me? Um, I felt tremendous gratitude that I was diagnosed so early. Um, I felt that there was some sort of force watching after me and guiding me, that I had the ability to have good doctors and to make judgment around good doctors. And... Um, I truly felt that there were a lot of wonderful people around me that demonstrated to me something beyond ourselves and our basic existence. You know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, as in any, in any experience of grief, you're brought down to the, the real basic, the real bareness of your right. soul and your feelings. And at that time, that's when the most unbelievable things appear. So I do believe that there's a synchronicity, and whether you call it spirituality or synchronicity or other forces, you know, it just depends, you know, how you view things. But for me, tremendously, there was something much bigger than me that gave me the strength. And I will tell you, a friend of mine um, who was a cancer survivor told me to read a little bit of Larry Dossey and the power of prayer. And Larry Dossey did not write from a religious standpoint. He studied prayer. And in his studies, he found remarkable impact upon prayer. 
and mm. prayer done in all different formats. And I will tell you, I physically felt at times in the darkest moments in the, in the first diagnosis of such fear, sometimes I would feel such a calm and a soothing come over me, and I truly didn't know where it came from. And mm. I do believe it was the power of prayer that I was feeling. So, wow. Wow, that's so yeah. powerful. How about you, Dave? Did, did you feel like you're the one who wrote about reaching for something to believe in? What, what did you reach for? Well, mine was more or less that I felt somebody was looking out for me. Mm-hmm. And I even flipped that around to saying I wasn't going to disappoint them either. Okay. okay. I wasn't going to disappoint myself and I wasn't going to disappoint them. And I do want to give you a quick anecdote on that. Mm-hmm. When I was first diagnosed, they thought I, besides having blood cancer, they thought I had brain cancer. And uh, they were going to get a neurosurgeon who was going to operate on me, and uh, he basically had told me that the chances of me ever walking again were going to be very slight mm. because of where the tumor was, whereas my oncologist believed that he could shrink the tumor and get rid of it with chemo rather than being too invasive. Right. And somebody looked after me, and the neurosurgeon went on vacation to Italy, and I pushed the oncologist saying, what is the worst case if we start doing chemo and doesn't work. He said, well, then you'll have to have the surgery. So I said, let's go and do the surgery. He said, well, I'm waiting for his call back, but he's on vacation. He said, well, I don't want to wait anymore. Let's Great. get going. And it turned out he was 100% right. Wonderful. That's yep. a little bit like Joel's story. It's the compassionate people uh, and what Patty's saying, the synchronicity. You just don't know about these things. But both of you were very, I think the three of you, are very, um, how should I say, you, you took matters into your own hand and made decisions that were to your best advantage. As much as everyone knows, the patient's the decision maker. Um, in the interest of time, I want to ask each of you to give all listeners a take-home message. Joel, what take-home message would you want to pass on to our listeners? I think I have three or four points, and it's a lot of what we've talked about before, is you need to have a strong support network. You need to be able to talk to other people. We need to have other people pep us up sometimes. You can't do this alone. It's not possible. Uh, We need to try as hard as we can to be upbeat. Uh, One of my theories is that it serves no purpose to be down. It makes you feel psychologically worse, and I think physically worse. Mm -hmm. Um. We have to be careful with the web and rely on our doctors. There's so much information out there. Some of it's contradictory. See the doctor. And I think the most important um, takeaway that I would have is that we have, we have physicals a lot. And under the Affordable Care Act, you're supposed to be able to get one for free every year. What people tend not to do, though, is to get their blood tested. And I'm alive today because I'm, I'm diabetic and I got blood tests all the time. And he saw a marker that he didn't like really early. So mm-hmm. please get your blood checked. Wonderful. How about you, Patty? What take-home message would you share with our listeners? Well, I would, I would share that it's, it's okay for you to allow yourself to grieve a little bit. I do think people, sometimes everybody says, you're going to be all right right away as soon as you get the diagnosis. And it doesn't right. allow you the sense of sadness, loss, mm-hmm. grief, any, whatever those mixed feelings are. So I think it's yes. very important to work your way through it, to come out of it. Um, but as Joel said, not to stay in it for too long, not, not to allow it to consume you, but to feel it and to say it's okay. The next thing is also to create a support system that works for you and 
create people that you feel safe talking to and people that you feel will not judge you and don't feel that you have to talk to everybody because as everyone has said, sometimes people mean well, but they don't know what to say. The, the kindest thing that I had was my, my very best friend never told me what to do and never offered sympathy, but she offered compassion and empathy, and she was able to say at times, there are no words, and it was really good to hear her say there were no words. Mm. Um, the medical intervention and the, the diagnostics, I think, are critical, and I think early intervention makes such a dramatic difference, and people should not be afraid. Many people refuse to go for tests when they hear someone's diagnosed. They're afraid to find out, and it should work the other way. Early Early intervention, early diagnosis is critical, so please, people should tap into that. And again, to believe that you'll come through it, to believe that there's something on the other side, to have a visual of what it looks like when you're on the other side. A colleague at mine at work would say to me at the second cancer, I want you to know in one month from now, you'll be sitting at this diner that we love, ordering eggs, and all of this will be behind you, and you'll be moving into the next phase. And I have to tell you, it sounds like a small thing, but the hope and the image of that propelling me to the month of September, which I did not even have on my calendar anymore. I had no dates beyond the surgery and the recovery mm. made such a difference. So I would say hold the picture and the image of where you're going, not where you've been. Precious, wonderful. How about you, Dave? What take-home message would you share with our listeners? Well, <clears throat> for people who are diagnosed with cancer, things are always getting better. Your job is to survive, because although things may look bleak today, tomorrow they could turn around instantly, and as I mentioned, every year it seems like they're coming up with new and better advances, and one of my oncologists told me that as long as you're surviving, we can probably continue your survival, and Mm. that's the key to to take with you, because my particular oncologist never gives up. When I asked him, well, what if this doesn't work? He says, we've got new things in the pipeline. In a year or so, we can try different things if this doesn't work for you. Mm. Uh, my takeaway is just like what Pat said and Joel said, look at the future. Don't look behind. Look ahead. Right. And that's really what you did, Dave, because when you started this journey, as you said, you didn't have grandchildren, and you have how many now? Three. Right. Right, terrific. It's really special. I want to thank each of you, Joel, Patty, Dave. What you did today is really share some unbelievable information. It's the wisdom of survivors. Your show today was really a gift to our listeners. Thank you all for coming on and sharing your personal stories. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the opportunity. You're so welcome. I want to thank my listeners, and I want to remind listeners that this show, um, by later this evening, and all the shows can be heard as podcasts on my host page, as well as on your iPhone under podcasts, on iTunes under Psych Up Live. Be sure to be listening next week. We'll be talking about. We'll be talking with Dr. Peter Stebbins. All the way from Australia, he's going to be calling in, and we're going to be talking about coping with stress, stress strategies, and in particular, his new book, The Seven Midlife Tsunamis. He's a surfer, by the way. Drop me a comment or question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. 
Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.